Hello, and welcome to Highland and Haver, the stage and screen podcast, coming to you from Casa de Quinn and 1111 Studios in beautiful Port Orchard, Washington. I'm Greg Heilman. And I'm Matt Haver. We're two local actors looking to hone our craft by exploring the best in local theater and on the big screen. Each week, we bring you entertainment news and views, celebrate classic Hollywood, enjoy cocktails with a Tinseltown twist, interview talented local actors and directors, and chat with industry experts from L.A. to the U.K. Today is September 3rd. Welcome to episode 42 with special guest, documentary filmmaker, and Olympic College digital filmmaking instructor, Mark Evans. Mark's latest project, Clay Dream, debuted at the 2021 Tribeca Film Festival. He'll join us in a few minutes to tell us about his journey as both an entrepreneur, teacher, and award-winning filmmaker. And if filmmaking is something you aspire to, then by all means, join us at the Seattle Film Summit. This premier event is a series of interactive educational panels and workshops focused on connecting our local industry to L.A., New York, and the rest of the world. The summit is a hybrid event comprising classes, workshops, panels, film screenings, award ceremonies, and networking opportunities, and we'll be there to cover it all starting this evening. So visit seattlefilmsummit.com for more info and to purchase tickets, and stay tuned to our social media pages for all the latest. Boy, it's hard to believe we've already hit episode 42. This has been a big year for us, and we owe it all to you, the listeners. And thank you to the local and regional art and theater community as well for welcoming us into their midst. We've learned an immense amount about stage and screen craft in the last 11 and a half months, and there's so much more to learn. With our one-year anniversary show coming up on September 18th, we wanted to find out what you, our listeners, would like to hear. That's right. Are you confused about just what it really means to be a method actor or what the hell a key grip does on set? Maybe you have a local theater you'd like to see profiled in our Get to Know a Theater segment or a classic film or star you think would make a superb subject on our cocktail trivia segment in the mix. If so, we'd love to hear from you. Shoot us a message on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter or email us at heilmanhaver at gmail.com. Drop us a line. Give us a ring. Send up a flare. Send us a carrier pigeon. I think what my long-witted co-host is trying to say is let us know. Our goal at Heilman and Haver is learning, sharing, and growing the arts community. So we want to hear from you. So please reach out and thanks again for listening. And now we're proud to welcome a guest we know you'll all enjoy learning from. Mark Evans is an award-winning independent filmmaker and creative entrepreneur. His most recent documentary, Clay Dream, premiered at the 2021 Tribeca Film Festival to critical acclaim. His debut feature film, The Glamour and the Squalor, won top prize at film festivals around the world before being acquired by Red Bull Media House. In addition to film, Mark has produced commercials for clients including the Smithsonian Institute, U.S. Navy, the Government of Haiti, and Clinton Global Initiative. With his wife Angela and son Jude, Mark leads the Macaw, a booty creative studio. The family business creates films, books, photography, and other unclassifiable works such as the Cowboy Bear Dinner Party Experience. Mark holds an MFA from Vermont College of Fine Arts and a bachelor's degree in business administration from Washington State University. He lives and works in Bremerton, Washington, where he teaches digital filmmaking at Olympic College. Welcome to the show, Mark. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for joining us. So this is a question we like to lead off with, with I think almost every guest that we've welcomed on the show. When did you first know you were interested in film? What age did that happen? And what was your inspiration? Yeah, you know, I came into it later. I didn't grow up thinking that I wanted to be a filmmaker. Um, I grew up in sports and loving sports and, you know, from an early age, wanting to be probably a major league baseball player, played sports through high school. And that was kind of my thing. And then, you know, went to college, went to Washington State, got my degree in marketing, uh, minor in entrepreneurship. And I was definitely the guy that always like was coming up with ideas, but it was more just applied to, you know, business ideas. And I thought maybe I would, you know, there, there was a, variety, a handful of business ideas that I was excited about coming out of college. But really the biggest inspiration was my older stepbrother, Kevin Noland, who did dream of being a filmmaker from when he was very young. He's 10 years older than I am. 
he would, he graduated from the University of Washington again about 10 years before I graduated from WSU and immediately went to LA and was sweeping floors, was, you know, it was a PA doing everything he could to, to, to learn the business and ultimately was a producer on a handful of films. So I kind of saw that. I was, again, I was watching that from afar. I was, I was working a sales job at the time, probably living in, I think I was living in Salt Lake City. And, but I thought it was, definitely thought it was really cool. And we talked someday about maybe doing something together. I didn't really know what that would be. And then in uh, January, 2010, my, my stepdad and Kevin's dad passed away of cancer. And about that, I think it was uh, four days before that was the, uh, the big earthquake in Haiti, not the most recent one that just happened, but the one in 2010 that killed like, you know, 250,000 people. So there was something about the timing of those things where I, I remember being at the airport coming home for my stepdad's celebration of life and just watching the images on, on, on news of this Haiti earthquake. And I think there was something of, you know, the Haitian people mourning all these losses and then me, you know, you know, just us mourning the loss of our, you know, in my case, my stepdad who, who I grew up with, you know, he raised me, uh, him and my mom. And there was just like this connection and just, so I kind of floated it out there. Why don't we go, why don't we go do something in Haiti? And we didn't even know what it was going to be. And we were very naive. I mean, we're still making this film actually now, uh, 11 years later, oh, wow. <laughs> which, um, it, it's kind of turned into like almost like a boyhood, uh, a do- the, the, the boyhood of documentary, um, but <laughs> a labor of love. Yeah. So, but that was, you know, I was 29 when we, when we started that. So it wasn't something, you know, that I got into super young, you know, but one of my regrets is not getting into it all sooner. It was as challenging as the business is. But that's where, so we went down there. I think we went down for our first trip, like in March of 2010, maybe it was a little bit later than that, but, and, and, you know, we raised some money and started making this film and, and I had just, you know, totally caught the bug, fell in love with it, uh, of just the storytelling of the meeting, meeting people and, and was kind of off to the races from there. So, you know, like I said, that's been, that for the first like two years was really kind of like my film school, my introduction to how to shoot, how I, I was editing, so how to edit. Uh, I raised money. I kind of did everything, every facet of, of a movie I worked on during that. And I was able to learn from, from my brother, Kevin, along the way. So I wasn't somebody that, um, that, that, that grew up wanting to do this, but as soon as I got into it, I was like, yeah, I, I, I want to do this forever. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of geography, so you mentioned Haiti, but if we go back a little bit to your college I guess, career, you could call it. Uh, you've got an MFA from Vermont College of Fine Arts and a bachelor's degree in business administration from Washington State. Yeah, Geogra- so two, two opposite sides of the I was, country. I was going to say, geographically, you can't get much farther apart <laughs> unless you went yeah. down to you know Miami or something like that. Um, so how did you go about seeking and or selecting those schools? And how did each of those programs provide you, even the business administration piece, how did that all prepare you for your career? I, I grew up in Tri-City, in the Tri-Cities in Richland. So, you know, WSU, two hours away, it was a place where I grew up going to college football games and, and was a fan. And I was set to play, um, I was going to go to a, a community college and play both baseball and basketball. And I, I had an arm injury. I was a pitcher and had a rotator cuff injury. And I just kind of was a little bit burnt out from that. So I decided I wasn't really wanting to, to put in the work to go through rehab and get back and, and, and I was just kind of ready to move on. So, um, and I had friends going to WCU. And again, I, I had been to the place and loved the campus. I didn't really look anywhere else. So I went there and, you know, the biggest thing that I think I learned in college is just how to live, how to be, you know, start becoming an, a, an adult right. and take care of myself and all that. But, but if I look back and think like, how did that set me up for filmmaking, even though I wasn't, you know, doing anything related to that, every, when you're working in independent film, especially and if you're a producer, every film project is like a startup company. So I think there was a lot that I learned of how to 
get something off the ground, how to come up with an idea, get something off the ground. Eventually you turn it into a movie ends up being a product that you've got to take to market. So I think there was a lot that I probably learned, not really ever at the time realizing I would end up applying it to the entertainment industry or to movies, but that probably put me ahead of some people that maybe didn't have that experience. And then at uh, VCFA in Vermont, that was a program that actually my, my, my brother Kevin found first. So he started, I believe, one semester before me. And we both had the same idea. The reason that we wanted to get our master's was to, to teach, to teach at uh, you know, filmmaking, let's say, in college. You, you, a master's is probably going to be required. So that was really it. It wasn't, uh, although we did learn a ton because of the, the faculty and working on the projects, that wasn't like the main reason to want to get the, the master's in, in filmmaking. It was to be able to teach. So that was a great program. He found it, loved the experience after, you know, the first six months and I was looking at teaching. And so went out there as well too. And I mean, we like Guy Madden, an acclaimed auteur from you know Canada. He was my advisor one semester. We, we became friends and he's still nice. a friend. Wow. So it was just, this, it's, a, it's a really, really incredible program. And actually um, Amy Hesketh, who also teaches uh, digital filmmaking at Olympic College, she went there too. And then we've got um, another adjunct, Craig Downing. I think he may have just graduated. I, I'm not sure, but we, we co-taught a class two quarters ago. He was finishing up. So it's kind of interesting. There's now this pipeline of VCFA, <laughs> master's MFA grads going to Olympic College. Um, but it's a, it's a really great program there. So, you know, that again, just uh, great connections, both students that are in the program. Um, I met some, you know, there's some really great students that have made big films that have, that have been released and done well. Um, and then the faculty is all, you know, working filmmakers, both in narrative and documentary that uh, also have done big things. I'm glad you said that going to college is more about learning how to grow up and, and go through life. I, I've always said that college is not to, you know, you don't, it's not the body of knowledge, but they teach you how to do things. They teach you how to learn and how to yeah. process things. And um, I think that's exactly what you're talking about. For sure. And, you know, I've got an 11 year old son and, you know, we're thinking about college and who, seven, six years from now, I guess. Um, just like, I don't know. I mean, college, it, it's different than it today than it was, you know, when I, when I was there and it's certainly different from then from early, like there's a lot of different ways to look, to have that experience. So, um, you know, I think he'll probably go to college and we're certainly preparing for that, but, um, <laughs> but you know, if he doesn't want to, and there's another way to like really develop him and get him ready for the real world, then I, I would certainly explore that as well too. Olympic college. One of the great things about that is just the affordability. It's like, absolutely. It's really world-class. Yeah. Um, and, and I can speak more to the filmmaking program because that's where I'm most knowledgeable, but as far as the education, the hands-on education, the faculty, and then the equipment. Uh, the equipment really blew me away. Like it's top of the line, cutting edge equipment that they have there. And um, and then for the price, it's it's really, really quite incredible that they can offer all that. Yeah, when we uh, we had Tim Hagen uh, a few weeks back on, it just what impressed us most about it was the affordability and the accessibility for uh, folks here in the you know Puget Sound region, but all across the country and world, people are, are applying, he said, uh, to the film school. And it's a really pretty revolutionary thing. I wanted to go back to something you said uh, a minute ago that I really liked, and that was a way to think about filmmaking. And that is that each one is like a startup company. I like that a lot. And what a complex, complex undertaking. But when you put it like that, it really makes a lot of sense. And, you know, filmmakers obviously need to be savvy financially, understand how money works. How do you balance these two worlds? Because on the one hand, you're an artist, but you do have to be a businessman too. Yeah. And, and I would like to, 
try to, as I move forward, phase myself out of being so involved in the business side. I mean, I'm always going to want to be involved with that. always want to have a say, especially early on in projects. Um, but I would like to kind of go a little bit more to the, you know, to, to focus on like the right brain side of it, I guess, the left brain being the more uh, <laughs> business side. But, but there's got to be a balance of both because it, it even starts with like picking, pre- I guess, first of all, it, decides, it depends on what you want to do, what your goals are with the project. I do want to pick projects that have commercial appeal. I want them to make money. I want them to be seen. And that's even more so, I, I'm thinking about that more. Like I've got four different projects in development now after, you know, after my last film, we're, we'll be releasing that here soon. And I'm really thinking hard about that, partly because of the experiences of these previous two films. But, I, but I'm, kind of, I'm starting to build a team out. Like I have a, a dedicated producer, have a manager for the first time in my career. I started working with him maybe like nine months ago. Uh, over the past couple of weeks, we've been having a lot of conversations with agents like CAA, at CAA and ICM and Endeavor, like kind of at the point where it's like, okay, I want to start building the team out so I can kind of take some of these things and not have to be the only person really focusing on them. I, I really truly believe that every film is like a startup but the problem is when you're kind of wearing all the hats at the end of it, at the end of it, you're, you're burnt out and you're just kind of ready. So like in a perfect world, you'd have this product. And then I, I think that there's such a future in self-distribution for any kind of film where again, it's a startup, this is my product and you're using Facebook ads and YouTube ads or whatever it is to get it out there. And people are buying it for 10 bucks and running it for four bucks because you can get it on all the platforms yourself. But again, by the time, you're done with the project, you're just burnt out. So then it's like, okay, well, great. I can work with a sales team that can go sell it in a traditional manner. And you're maybe a little bit less involved. And maybe even at the end of the day, you might not make as much, but then you're just ready to move on to the next one. So there's there's a balance there. I think there's a world, and there's some filmmakers that have done that really, really well that have treated it like a startup and they're pretty independent and they control all the rights when they're done with it. And they do really well, but you've got to be willing to to like be really hands-on for another year after you've put the movie out. And that's, that can be my challenge. Like I get, I get a little bit, um, I don't say I get bored with anything, but I just get a little bit antsy to like move on to creating the next thing. And it's hard to be creating the next thing when you're working on the business side of the previous thing. Yeah. It's kind of like when Matt, when we were you know speaking with Danny Bilson about what do you, you you've got a screenplay and do you keep your, fingers into it when a director or or whoever takes your screenplay he's like i'm i'm done with that as soon as my screenplay is done i hand it over i step away and move on to the next thing yeah yeah now you mentioned uh so so documentary obviously and you and you talked about some of the things you keep in mind when you're producing or selecting a documentary but going back to how you got interested in documentary filmmaking if you look at documentaries they're not exactly the most sexy or flashy things or get get the most accolades uh you know, you watch the Ken Burns documentaries that are on PBS. They're not- I, would, I would say that's all changing in the last, you know, five years. I think documentaries, and, and I think it's going to continue. It's like this golden era, and I think that will continue to be even more so. But 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 traditionally, if you're not in the know, that's mm-hmm. still a perception. Is like, you know, it's kind of like the, the redheaded stepchild or whatever. Yeah, and surely when you got into it, I'm sure it was that way, right? So yeah. what got you interested in documentary filmmaking specifically? I think it made, it just made sense to me because when, when I think about like writing a script that can be pretty daunting, the blank page, um, I would be interested in, I've done a little bit of that and I would be interested in pursuing that a little bit more, but that to me is challenging. Like my, my next door neighbor, Chris Cornelis, he writes about movies for the wall street journal 
he, he used to be at the uh, at, he was at Seattle Weekly. He was at Kitsap Sun, but he's got a couple columns for the Wall Street Journal. I, I texted him like last week. I was like, how do you just like wake up every day and just write words? You know, like <laughs> think of these words to write. And he, he, he writes tons of articles. And it's like, and he's you know writing a couple books right now as well too. And and he's just like, you know, sometimes it's a slog, but that for me, like the writing part is just like so hard. So immediately when I come up with an idea, like I am developing a potential like big show, a period piece that's all scripted. It's based on a true story from like early 1900s, and um, kind of you know helped get a pilot going. But my my initial thought is when it's something writing is always like, who can I work with on this, versus like doing it myself. So that that to me is just hard. It's also when I think about like directing actors, um, a director definitely, they direct interviews, a, a director directs interviews, a director directs the edit. Uh, there's a lot of directing going on, but also there's um, directing sometimes of B-roll or even of reenactments, which I usually bring into my films. But the thought of like directing a narrative film and just working with actors, that's also something that like, I, I'm interested in it, but it's not, it doesn't excite me more than what documentary is, which is kind of like a collage of you've got, you've got all these different elements. So you're going to shoot things, you're going to interview, you're going to pull archive. So there's the research uh, element that goes in, which is both archive footage and like newspapers and stuff. And then, and then figuring out a way to make them all work together. And I really, I really, I really liked collage growing up. Like I remember making a lot of both music collages of my favorite bands and sports, like just, you know, cutting this stuff out of magazines and putting them together. And so I think like when I, when I just kind of stumbled in to the documentary thing, it made sense because I kind of thought of it like you just, you're just gathering all of these elements, some that already exist, some that you have to create, and then you're creating the story from those elements instead of creating it from scratch. I think Kurt Cobain and maybe Bowie both had like collage writing styles where they would like cut words out and stuff and like mix them around and they came up with a lot of lyrics that way hmm. it's kind of like a similar thing like and, may, and, I, and i don't know if they had a tough time with the blank page but to me like having these elements to start with like that's where i'm able to it just makes sense where i can find stories that way the framework right you so get you have the framework yeah. on which to build rather than having to build that entire thing yeah it's so like when i'm interviewing you know i might do a one hour interview with somebody and if it's a good interview that ends up being used for the, the project, which my, my last film, I think I interviewed 50 people and used like 18 of them. And not to say that the ones that I didn't use weren't good interviews. They just ended up not being used for you know many different reasons. But let's say, you know, five minutes of that is going to be five minutes of a one hour interview is going to be used in a film. But that's also something I like looking at, like, okay, well, here's all these things that they said. And those, those little pieces that I chose, and they're way better than I could have come up with to write. Now I'm just, oh, I'm able to use other people's words. And that just made my job easier. In, in my putting, the, putting the puzzle together. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I did a little writing uh, in the past and it's it's kind of the same thing. You take those interviews, you get those quotes and then you plug them in and then you just kind of shuffle them around until it all, there's that nice flow. Yeah. It's it's funny you mentioned, you know, digging through archives. We uh, I think it was episode 26. We had a, uh, a friend of the show on, uh, Robert Bader. He's an author, producer, documentary filmmaker. And he also oversees the archives for the Marx Brothers, uh, Dick Cavett, Bing Crosby, Danny Kay. He's written books and made films about these people, obviously, because he's interested in them. This is the things that he, you know, he lives in and eats and breathes every day. How do you go about choosing your subjects? And do you think that a filmmaker necessarily needs to be fascinated by his topic in order to make a good film? 
Yeah, probably. And and I don't know if fascinated is the word or, or if it's passionate or if it's, you know, obsessed or whatever, but I, but I, but you're going to spend all the above. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if you're, if you're like fully fun, if it's a feature documentary and you're fully funded and you're not just tried like, which, you know, generally you're going to be like scrapping for money along the way and everything, but let's say you're fully funded, you're going to spend a minimum a year and a half to two years. You're probably going to spend closer to three to five years on the subject. So you better really, really, really like it. Yeah. Sounds like it. Yeah. And so for me, it's kind of, you know, I, I'll get excited about ideas and I mean, I've got a, you know, a list of just, you know, way more projects than I'll end up ever getting to <laughs> the ones that I end up coming back to, or, you know, I just can't stop thinking about them. It's like, I, I've got, I get this feeling like I have to make this. And one, I feel like I'm the right person to do it. I want to do it. I feel like I'll be fulfilled if I, if I make this. And, and again, it just doesn't go away. Like it's that feeling of like, uh, like there, there was this one, there's a true crime story that um, I've been developing for a little while, I guess kind of making, but more just developing based in Kodiak, Alaska in 1986. And I tried to get it going like five years ago and I just kind of, I, I couldn't get access to kind of the main person that I needed access to. He, he was on board, but he's in prison in Alaska and, and they wouldn't let me, interview him they just kind of I just couldn't get access to him so that was that you know we kind of dropped it and and it was one of those I just couldn't forget about this story and how I thought that it would just make a really really great project and I was well suited to make it for a lot of different reasons and so about two years ago just reapproached it again tried it at a different angle got the access went out to Alaska did an interview and then we've been kind of going ever since but but again like I could have just you know maybe would have been better if I would have just been able to forget about it and let it go but it was, just, but I was just really, really interested in the story and, you know, fascinated by it. So I, I, I wanted to keep going on it. So is that maybe the most challenging or most challenged you've been with trying to get to sources and, and material for a subject? Yeah, maybe. I mean, there's somewhere like I, I made The Glamour and the Squalor was a movie that I made and put out in 2016. And I interviewed a lot of rock stars for that. And there were some that, you know, I couldn't get to that I wanted that would have been great for the story that's another side of it too. It's like, you got to decide like, you know, how long do you just keep waiting or trying versus just moving on and, and just being like, okay, well, it's not going to happen. That's fine. And then when you're dealing with famous people, if you're having to go through the channels that people want you to go through, like managers or agents or PR reps or whatever, maybe like 5% of the time that rep will actually pass, pass it on and, and ask other, they almost always just say, no, they're not available. Their schedule's too busy. So you got to find another. So, I mean, there's, there's all kinds of challenges, but this was the pro- probably the one where like, if I didn't get that actual, yes, I just wouldn't have been able to do it because mm. that was like the, the subject, you know, in, in a way. So, but, but yeah, I mean, there's always, obviously there's always challenges getting to people and, and some people just don't want to do it. I mean, the film that I just finished and is doing festivals and will be releasing here this year, Clay Dream there was a handful of people that I would have loved to have and, and um, they just didn't want to do it. And, and that's fine. Usually what I'll do is I'll go for, I'll, I'll go for everybody at the beginning of the process and get the yeses and I'll shoot them. But then the no's I'll just kind of be like, okay, no problem. You know, I appreciate the, you know, the consideration. And then I'll come around at the end when I'm about finished making it. And then I can be a little bit more precise as far as what exactly I want them to talk about, because we've already got like a rough cut maybe done. Yep. And, and then I'll take one more stab and, and then, then it's usually like 50, 50. Some people will come around and because the timing is just better and, and others just still don't want to do it. And it's fun. Hmm. So your son, Jude plays in multiple rock bands at yes. 10, 11 years old yes. and recently wrote a book, an ABC uh-huh. book called bands by Jude. So you're obviously a family of music lovers. You mentioned glamour and the squalor. 
Tell us about your experience making that documentary in 2015 about, obviously, the great Marco Collins. Um, for those who don't know, one of America's last true rock and roll DJs uh, and a real musical tastemaker uh, in his time. Was Marco here of yours? No, I, I didn't know who Marco was, actually. Um, so so he was on 107.7 The End in Seattle, which oh, was, yeah. uh, you know, especially at the time in the early 90s when they launched very, very powerful rock radio station that... Marco and the station helped launch really the grunge scene. You know, they were they were playing it commercially. Uh, you know, Nirvana and Pearl Jam's albums, first uh, Nevermind and Ten, both launched or both came out like right pretty much around the first month that that radio station started. And so it was a commercial radio station playing all these bands. Um, but I didn't get the station because I grew up in on the other side of the state. But I did listen to it whenever I came over to Seattle. If we were coming over for like a Seattle Mariners game as a family or something, I would tune into it. And I remember hearing the song seven by sunny day real estate that I never heard before <laughs> heard it one time on the radio and Marco played it, which I didn't know till later. He was you know, the first one to play this song. And I was just like obsessed over this song for like six months until I came back to Seattle and heard it again and finally figured out who the band was so I could go get the CD. But I, but I, I didn't know who Marco was growing up. Uh, my wife did, but I came across the the way that that came about was way back in 2011. So, so I just, you know, six months, probably maybe a year working on the Haiti project being like my first introduction into doing anything film or documentary related. I was kind of just thinking like loving it and thinking like, what are some other projects maybe that I could do and just kind of having the antennas out for ideas. And I was in the Seattle area. We were living in San Diego at the time, but we were in the Seattle area for a little while and the end was doing a radio uh, a countdown of their top 107 songs of all time. It was their 20th anniversary. So they were counting down their top 107 songs of all time. And they were having a lot of the, you know, the, the most popular radio DJs come back and share their stories. And every time Marco came on and told a story, it was just really, really exciting to me, like how he was friends with these rock stars and just talking about that time, you know, 1991 to 1994, let's say where you had, Kurt Cobain and Eddie Vedder and the guys from Pearl Jam and you had Allison Chains and Soundgarden all just like kind of living in this small area at you know, the same place at the same time. And at the same, at, at that same time in 2011, um, Midnight in Paris had just come out with um, Owen Wilson, you know, who goes back into 1920s Paris. And it, in a way, it reminded me of that, like in 1920s Paris, you had Hemingway and Fitzgerald's and, you know, all these great, you know, the American uh, expats. And so I thought there was something there. I was like, maybe I'll write a script about, 1991 Seattle, but tell it from the standpoint of the this DJ at this radio station. So that was the initial idea. And then after, I, then I think I probably faced the blank page. I was like, oh God, I don't really know what to, you know, I, I, I actually, I should find this. I, I think I wrote a little bit. I probably wrote like 10 pages and I'm sure it's just horrible. That was, it was bad enough, I'm sure for me to be like, well, maybe this is just a documentary. <laughs> and uh, so a producer and I reached out to Marco and, you know, had an initial like three or four hour lunch, I think with him. And, and he was really open to the idea, but it took, you know, six months or so before he signed on and was like, let's do it. Cause I think he, he knew that if he was going to do it, he wanted to go like all in. And, and uh, but yeah, that, that for a first film, again, it was something I learned so much. Uh, you know, we had, again, we had to go back to the beginning as a startup, you raise all, you raise money and, that came from a variety of places that came from a couple investors. It come, came from donors. There was a Kickstarter, there was grants. So just, you know, all these different ways to bring in the money to make it. And then doing, you know, not just the interviews with Marco, but we shot, there wasn't a lot of archive of him. There was a lot of the 
bands that he helped break, but there wasn't a lot of people, you know, shooting footage in the early 90s of the radio DJ. So we did some animation and we also did a lot of recreation. Uh, so we shot a lot for that film. So all those things that, you know, kind of came together. So it was just, it was a great learning experience to be able to like really do a little bit of everything on that project. Well, thank you again to our guest, documentary filmmaker, entrepreneur, and educator, Mark Evans. Join us next week, Friday, September 10th, for the second half of our interview. And in the meantime, you can find out more about Mark and the Evans family, other creative works at www.themacaw.studio, linked in the show notes. And if you enjoy the show, make sure to follow us and share the podcast with a friend. Tell them to visit heilmanandhaber.com and tune in on Apple Podcasts, YouTube, Amazon Audible, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Pandora. Drop us a message on Facebook and Twitter. And as always, thank you wherever you are for supporting local theater and for joining us on Heilman and Haber. 